Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 231, Battle Comes in Many Forms. Last time, South African leader Jan Smuts won the argument about what to do with the rest of Madagascar, namely, take it. This would deny the Japanese a base of operations in the western Indian Ocean and allow excess Allied troops on the island to head to India, where things were not going according to plan. Of course, the Allies did not know that Governor General Annette had been told, win or destroy everything of value on the island. Either way, for General Sturgis's men, speed was the order of the day. And things had started out well enough on that September 10th, at Mahunga on the west coast. Troops were landed to the north of the city, and the French military commander then gathered his men and sent them in that direction, not knowing that some of the Allied troops had already circled around to the southeast of the town. Thus, very little stood in between them and their target. But things can always get worse, and they were about to for the Vichy troops in Mahunga. For coming in fast, right at the port city, were landing craft full of South Lanks and commandos. The craft were protected by the destroyer Blackmore, so when the Vichy patrols fired their machine guns, they aimed at the vessels full of flesh and blood men, not the warship. And indeed, a few of the men were hit, but probably trying not to anger the Allied troops too much who were about to land, the machine guns went silent when the lengths and commandos touched soil. Or so the invaders might have believed, but as they lined up, checking to see who was still battle-worthy, the machine guns started up again, but not for long. Here's how a sergeant of the South Lanks described what happened next. In two minutes, we were out of the boat, lining up, ready to go, That moment, fire opened up. It was two machine guns, one firing from a house opposite and one from a barge by the jetty on the left. We turned around with our backs to the wall and opened fire with automatics, pistols, everything we've got. They were only 15 or 20 yards away, and we shut them up all right. Not needing another surprise, the South Links cleared the docks and then headed further into town. Here and there they were met, but not well met. The Lanks' intense return fire saw many Vichy troops surrender. In eight minutes, some 80 enemy soldiers were under arms, but the fighting was not over. At that moment, a few swordfish and martlets from the Fleet Air Arm and South African Air Force flew over. Not so much to bomb, the Allies needed the port facilities intact, but to show the Vichy the futility of further resistance. This was at 5.40 a.m., and the first rays of light began to show. Now that the main assault force had moved away from the water, naval personnel came forward to remove any demolition devices attached to said facilities, but they were soon under sniper attack. Thus, the Royal Naval Commandos were called up, and within minutes, their Lewis guns and grenades made sure that those French snipers would never threaten anyone, ever again. As Sturgis had planned for success, the last thing he and his men needed was to fight the same enemy troops twice. So, while the fighting was going on, number two troop of number five commando were loaded up onto our boats, or round boot, which the Germans used as minesweepers. But here, 
they would carry the men up the river Icopa to make sure no enemy forces escaped Mahunga. But the commandos found out that the Vichy were not the only things on the island trying to kill them. A commando later wrote of this adventure. As we traveled up the river, the tide began to go out, and we began to run aground on sandbanks. The river was full of crocodiles, so before we could get into the water to lighten the craft and push them off the sandbanks, hand grenades were thrown into the river to keep the crocodiles at bay. In time, the commandos reached their destination, but they had to stop. No one, as by the time they got there, given the delay of dealing with the crocodiles, the fighting was over. Mahunga had surrendered, and the chief of the battalion, Martins, had been captured. This was at 7 a.m., but before Martin surrendered, he had to check on something first. As he was surrounded and had at least four guns pointing at him, he asked the colonel of the South Links, Did my men fight well? To which the colonel, with his best poker face, said, Magnificently. The battalion commander surrendered, So then a French and British officer got into a car with a white flag, and they drove around the town, yelling to everyone that the battle was over. A journalist with the commandos wrote up the account, and he called it the battle before breakfast. Tidying up, after the harbor was swept from mines, the warships entered. The water was free of danger, but what about the town? To clear that equally of dangers, a bishop who knew the town and its people well was put into a Bren carrier, driven around, and asked to point out any Vichy sympathizers. So soon the town and harbor were cleared. Governor General Annette learned of Mahunga changing hands, and he knew the enemy would soon be coming at the capital. But that meant if he was going to continue to follow the orders of Vichy, he would need to leave Tananariv to remain the leader of the fight. But that meant he would become a wanted man on an island he had only recently commanded. The shame could not be borne. He needed to stay in the capital, if only to get the best terms for himself and his men. So he sent off a message to Vichy with a suggestion. He put forth that his secretary general, Monsieur Pavien, run the government in the south, as yet untouched by the British, while he, Annette, stayed in the capital to face the Allies. Vichy could have simply said, no, follow your orders, but they were French and proud. So the response they came back went something like this. You are the representative there, thus whatever part of Madagascar is not under enemy control, you will administer it in the name of France. Further, that our orders to you might be for reasons which may escape you incomprehensible, still you will comply. But as Annette knew how this was going to end, he decided to be his own man. If he couldn't win, and he couldn't, he would get the best deal from the British. That's how he would serve the island and his government. So, on September 16th, Annette replied back to Vichy, I have contacted the British to see how we can end the fighting, fighting that we cannot win. Next, he sent a message to General Platt in South Africa, asking him to receive his representatives so they may ascertain by what means we can, with honor, cease the conflict before the last battle takes place. 
Platt happily agreed, believing Annette was more sincere this time. And so the next day, on September 17th, talks began in Mahunga. For the British, it was Lawrence Grafty Smith, chief political advisor, for the Vichy, two representatives picked by Annette. Of all the questions, Annette's biggest goal and desire was to have Madagascar remain neutral during the war, to linger in a kind of -of out-of-bounds way. But Platt knew that the Axis would never respect this, so why should he? Grafty Smith made it clear on day one. Madagascar was to be controlled by the Allies for the duration of the war and actively help out in that war against the Axis. But this was further than Annette could go, as Vichy's dozens of messages on that day made quite clear. However, after the war, a French historian would claim that on the day Vichy found out that there had been Allied landings at Mahunga, Prime Minister Pierre Laval had ordered Annette to start negotiations, but that Berlin had found out about this order and demand that it was cancelled. Either way, Annette could not say the word he wanted to to this deal that the British were offering, which was basically, we. Thus, the battle, the fighting, continued. When the South Lanks and commandos landed near Mahunga, another, though much smaller party of commandos, landed at Morondava, about 380 miles or 611 kilometers south of Mahunga. Fortunately, they had no run-ins with crocodiles, but there was something there almost as dangerous. As no Vichy troops were here, the 40 men of Number 6 troop landed unopposed. Though there was a fort, so the men rushed in and they took down the French flag. Which is when the commander's wife ran up, snatched the flag from the hands of the filthy roast beef, as some French call the British for how they cooked that particular meat, and wrapped it around her body. Was she protecting the flag or herself with the flag? Either way, neither were harmed, as the commandos had no more desire for her than she did in eating their ill-prepared beef. And as we are talking about the British, there could not be a battle without a bit of sleight of hand. Now that Morondava was taken, the commando leader there, Sergeant Ohana, who was British-Moroccan and spoke fluent French, got on the phone from the district commissioner's house and he called the capital, Tananarive. Ohana pretended to be the commissioner with his perfect French, and he told the other person on the line that the British had landed here with thousands of men, and more were coming, so it would be wise for the capital to just surrender. Things were going pretty well on this call for a while. Annette eventually got on, and he was certainly spooked. But then he asked the commissioner the name of his youngest daughter. Well, the game was up. Still, some Vichy troops were moved to meet this possible massive threat. Now that Mahunga was in Allied possession, the 29th Brigade's part in this was over. No additional men were landed. Further, Brigadier Francis Festing turned over all of his landing craft to the East African Brigade. It was vital for the East Africans to head up the river as the bridges between here and the capital had to be secured. They left out at 8.40 a.m., being told the bridges were heavily defended and probably already rigged to blow. They had to move fast, thus the supposed river-worthy landing craft were handed over. 
One bridge was about 99 miles or 159 kilometers away on the Camaro River. The next one was on the Betsy Boca River, another 30 miles or 48 kilometers away. As these bridges were vital in order to attack and then defend the capital, the South Africans were betting on those Vichy troops at the bridge to not detonate the explosives unless they heard directly from the capital. So, one, Festine made sure that none of his planes flew over the bridges to panic the troops there, and two, when the war office turned down Platt's request to have paratroops drop over the bridges, he told the South Africans, for the next few days, speed will take care of all of your problems. But that did not mean London was not going to do anything to help. That help would come in the form of the SOE, Special Operations Executive. Formed in the summer of 1940, the SOE was to conduct espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in general in occupied Europe. And the idea was, as war was, a complete breakdown in dialogue, well then, the idea was to be the one who came out on top of that war by almost any means necessary. Besides, it's much cheaper to send in a few relative specialists versus an entire army. And even during war, countries count their coins. But this would not be the SOE's finest hour. First, the SOE was to have cut the phone lines between Mahunga and the capital just before the landings to the north of Mahunga. For whatever reason, this failed to happen. But not to worry, the SOE had a backup plan. They would send their own forces to capture the bridges even before the South Africans arrived. Let's see how that turned out. During the night of September 7th, 8th, so before the commandos landed, the SOE operatives landed just north of Mahunga, like those commandos who would soon be there. They were brought to shore by the SOE coastal freighter Frontier. Yes, they had their own vessels, but that was the high point of this operation. The first group of operatives was put ashore in the wrong place, hence they were unable to locate the two lorries left for them. Of this group, only one man made it to Mahunga, and by then he had been laid low by malaria. The second group came ashore during the daylight, so hoped to have an easier time of it, and an easier time was had by the Vichy in spotting these invading troops. The operatives of this group were forced back onto the frontier to make good their escape. Going back to the phone line cutting plan, as this had also failed, or rather the line was cut, but only after Mahunga notified the capital that it was under attack, a message was sent to the men at the bridge over the Bessi Boca to detonate the charges. Countering this, it was soon discovered that the transport ships could not go upriver. It was not deep enough. But speed was the order of the day. So the 22nd South African Brigade was broken into three groups and a forward body, and when the armored cars started coming off the larger ships, these men piled into them and raced away, hoping the cars would stand them in good stead since they could not use the boats. The forward body left Mahunga, now secured, at 11.30 a.m., Driving pell-mell for hours, the first bridge at Camaro was reached by 4 p.m. Fortunately, though the French had sufficient time, this bridge was not actually set up 
to be destroyed, as in the charges had not been lain. So when the South Africans roared up, guns at the ready, the defenders ran away. Next was the Bessie Boca bridges, some 30 miles or 48 kilometers away. I say bridges because the Betsy Boca is the largest river on the island, and as such, it is actually a series of bridges to cross it to get to the capital. And by now, the French had to be aware of what was happening. For the South Africans, there wasn't enough speed in the universe. When the sun rose the next day, September 11th, the forward body headed out, led by Major Dawson. The idea, the hope, was that the forward body could take the bridges and hold them long enough for the three fighting groups to reach and assist them. With the armored cars racing down the road, they soon came upon a series of downed trees. These were dealt with quickly enough, and the race was once again a foot, or a wheel. The river was reached at 6.30 a.m. Those armored cars were certainly made of stern stuff. Of the bridges, which covered 1,600 feet, the largest bridge covered 452 feet all by itself, and that's what the South Africans focused on. Unfortunately for them, when they got there, they found that the French had cut the cables holding the bridge in place. But as the Vichy troops were about to find out, not everything goes according to plan. With the cables cut, the bridge sunk down which makes sense, but as it was well built, it simply sagged until it reached the riverbed, about three feet below the river's surface. So, besides the starting descent down the first part of the lower bridge, about 30 feet long, once past this, it was business as usual. Having said that, there were still numerous Malagasy troops on the other side of this bridge, with machine guns. And though the South Africans could still use the vehicles they had to cross the bridge, they would have to do that at a much slower rate. Were they about to achieve another success or become fish in a barrel? Time would tell. 